Greetings. So on Sunday, October the 10th, the sermon was basically unwatchable, as was the rest of the worship service because of some technical difficulties we had on Sunday morning. And a couple of people have asked to, to get a hold of that sermon in some way. So I thought I would just re-deliver it, talking just to the camera, uh, so that uh, those of you who want to can listen to it or can watch it. The passage for this weekend was from Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. So I'll read that first, and then we'll dive in. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is from, through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I was reminded last week of the French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal. He was quoted during a presentation at the Central Conference Pastors and Families Retreats up at Covenant Harbor. And the quote was something about uh, something called liminality. Liminality. Now, liminality or, or liminal comes from the Latin word limen, which means threshold. So that can be the space between two rooms, the threshold of a door, for example. Or it can be uh, like the, the, the lobby is the, is the liminal space between the sanctuary and the parking lot. And it can be used metaphorically, too. Uh, the space between jobs, the space between phases in life, uh, the times of uncertainty when we don't know exactly what's coming next, literally, figuratively, theologically, philosophically. All of it is, in a sense, liminal space. Blaise Pascal was a brilliant man. I sold him short in my brief introduction a moment ago. He was a mathematician and a philosopher and a physicist and an inventor and a writer and toward the end of his life, a theologian, to say the least. He invented the first calculating machine, the first syringe, and the first wristwatch, all before the age of 39 when he died. This is what he had to say about this concept of liminality. Quote, somewhere, something incredible is waiting to be known. Somewhere, something incredible is waiting to be known. Now, there can be smaller scale liminal spaces like those I mentioned a moment ago, or like the kind of liminal space we at ECC are in right now, knowing that somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known for you, for me, for us. And then there can be much bigger liminal spaces. We can see this liminality at work in Paul's letter to the Philippians. He's in prison when he writes it. He's suffering for his faith. He, he also knows that the Philippians are suffering for their faith and for other reasons. And in the letter itself, scholars have discerned a few challenges that the Philippian church was facing that Paul is addressing. Disunity, legalism, and persecution. Disunity, legalism, and persecution. Disunity. People weren't getting along. Imagine. People weren't getting along. 
And he addresses this most directly over in chapter 4 when he writes of a quarrel between two women, possibly leaders in the house church, in the house church movement in Philippi, urging them to get along with one another. Disunity. Legalism. By which we mean that there were Jewish Christians who have been pressuring the non-Jewish Christians or the Gentiles to adhere to the Jewish law. And the technical name for these people is Judaizers. That is, they were trying to take the, the, the religion of Judaism and enforce it upon people who were not Jewish. Judaizers. We, were, we are free from this kind of legalism, Paul says. We are saved by God's grace through faith. Persecution. Philippi was a Roman colony. It had its own military base. There was a strong military presence uh, in the city and in the culture there. There was a great devotion to the emperor who lived in Rome. The emperor was sometimes referred to as Lord and Savior. Imagine how awkward and difficult it was for this early group of Christians following someone who they, whom they called Lord and Savior. It was it was a reason to be attacked and criticized. It was reason possibly to even accuse them of treason. So these early Christians in Philippi were harassed and persecuted. In the first part of Philippians 3, Paul goes after the Judaizers. He calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. They boast in works done in the flesh, done in their own strength, rather than in the grace of God and the power and victory of Jesus' death on the cross. Paul will have none of this. In fact, he goes on to say, if they think they have any reason for confidence in such things, he has even more. Verses 4 through 6 of Philippians 3. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul's not messing around. He had this Judaism thing down, right? He was one of the best. He was faultless. But none of that matters to him anymore. Verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul celebrates the good news of the gospel. We do not have to earn Christ or his forgiveness. All of it is a gift to us. We receive it by faith. We embrace it. And again, as I have told and shared with you before, the words faith and belief coming from the same root word in the Greek the words translated as faith and belief could also be translated as allegiance. Allegiance. In fact, some scholars say we should just start translating that way. Why? Because faith, the way we often think of it, is mere mental assent, mental agreement with something. But that is not what faith is. That is not the biblical kind of discipling kind of faith. Faith is pledging our very lives to Christ, believing something so much that we will give ourselves to it. And this doesn't mean we do it perfectly right off the bat. It means we are on a journey to grow in our allegiance to Christ. In our allegiance to Christ. Scott McKnight refers to faith and belief by this phrase. He says it is trust over time. Trust over time. That's worth pondering. True faith, true allegiance to Christ is not about getting it all at once at the moment of our conversion is about learning to trust Jesus with more and more and more of our lives over our lifetimes. 
trust over time. Blaise Pascal came to faith in Christ, allegiance to Christ, when he was 31 years old. Well, he had certainly been exposed to the faith and even considered the Bible on some level to be the Word of God, but for him it was all a bit too abstract until a certain point. On November 23rd, 1654, his horses bolted and plunged off a bridge into the river, but he somehow fell to the ground and was shaken. And that night he had a two-hour vision, a two-hour-long vision from God, and he came to faith in Christ. And afterwards, or possibly the next day, he wrote down a series of ecstatic phrases that described what he was feeling at that moment. And then he, he kept this on a piece of paper, sewn into his coat jacket for the rest of his life. We wouldn't even know it was there because he really told no one about it, as far as we know. We wouldn't even know that he had had this experience if his servant, after his death, wasn't going through his things and felt this piece of paper in his coat and took it out and saw it. And so now we know. And this is part of what he wrote on that piece of paper. From about half past 10 in the evening until half past 12, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This is life eternal that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus Christ, may I not fall from him forever. I will not forget your word. Amen. And that's only about a fourth of what he wrote down. There is a link in the Bible app if you still have access to that where you can read more of what he wrote. Blaise Pascal's life was transformed. All that he had been before, all the important foundational work from his past, took second place from that point on. He became convinced that he must live his life for God alone. The Apostle Paul will later say that one of the things he has done to better know Christ is to forget whatever's behind and to strain toward what lies ahead. And what he means by that is that all, all the, he's forgetting all the good that he has done. As a Pharisee, all the good things he has done, he is, he is letting go, he's forgetting that. None of that uh, any longer matters to him in comparison to Christ. In a, in a different way, this was true of Blaise Pascal too. Knowing Christ became the ultimate prize. All the rest, as good as it was, all the rest fell way down the list to a distant second. In fact, after his conversion in, in, at the age of 31, he literally stopped doing all of that stuff. And if I could have a conversation with him today, I said, no, Mr. Pascal, please continue to work in science and physics and inventing things. We need that too. God can use that too. But that was not his experience. He let all of it fall way down. This begs the question, where is your passion for Christ on the list of your priorities? Where is mine? How important is that to us? Both Paul and Pascal represent for us the truth of Paul's theological concept that unfolds in this passage, and that truth is this. Coming to faith in Christ is only the starting line. There is yet a prize to win. Coming to faith in Christ is only the starting line. There is a prize yet to win, yet to be won. There is much more to know and to come to know and to experience in our relationship with Christ. Paul will demonstrate this for us in the next couple of verses. After he has celebrated the loss of all things so that he might know and gain Christ, Paul dives into deeper water. Verse 10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul already knows Christ by grace through faith, he, but, but he wants to know him more. He wants to know him more deeply. And then he identifies what knowing Christ looks like. 
He will more deeply know Christ when he experiences the power of Christ's resurrection, participates in his sufferings, and becomes like him in his death. He will know Christ more deeply when he experiences the power of Christ's resurrection, participates in his suffering, and becomes like him in his death. Why does Paul mention Christ's suffering and death after the resurrection? That seems to be out of order, right? Because for us to move into deeper water, for us to pursue our own transformation, we will need the power of Christ's resurrection surging, coursing through our veins. We will not be able to persevere through the difficulty that lies ahead in our own strength. We will need resurrection power. As I mentioned earlier, there are several references to suffering in uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, both Paul, uh, Paul's suffering and the people to whom he is writing. In chapter 1, Paul speaks of his imprisonment and he asks the question, uh, saying, I don't know if I'm going to die here or live longer. And he closes out that chapter, verses 28 to 29 of chapter 1. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. In chapter 2, he speaks of Christ's suffering and death on the cross, and writes that we are to have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who suffered and died in obedience to God. God rewards those who live cross-shaped lives. God rewards those who live cross-shaped lives. To know Christ, to truly know Christ, is to live a cross-shaped life. This is what allegiance to Christ looks like, is to live life as Jesus lived it. It is to embrace the way of suffering when necessary and to become like him in his death. As we sang earlier in the service on Sunday, our God is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb that was slain. Our God is the Lion of Judah, but he's also the Lamb that was slain. Here, Paul is lifting up for us the imagery of the Lamb that was slain as our model for life. We are to walk the way of the cross, live and die as Jesus did. Paul has come to believe that the only way to make sense of his own suffering is to pair it with Jesus' suffering and death. And so in Christ, we see a pattern, suffering, death, and resurrection. Suffering, death, and resurrection. Humiliation, death, resurrection, exaltation. This is where all things are headed. Rodney Reeves, in his book, Spirituality According to Paul, says this. He says, the only reason Paul can see the advantages of his imprisonment, the honor of his shameful chains, and the good in his death is due to the example of Christ Jesus. Jesus gave up equality with God and humbled himself by becoming a man, an obedient slave who died on a Roman cross. The pattern of humiliation leading to exaltation is the essence of the gospel according to Paul. Messianic suffering must precede messianic glory. Death gives life, loss becomes gain, shame morphs into honor, the cross explains the resurrection. What might happen to you or to me if we were, or to all of ECC, if we were all to seek to live our lives interpreting everything bad, everything that bad that happens to us or causes suffering as an opportunity to experience the cross of Christ, to participate in his sufferings and to become like him in his death? I know it would be hard. I'm not saying all the suffering is good. I'm saying what would it look like? What would happen if we began to attempt to do what Paul does? and liken our sufferings to what Christ has suffered and try to do it the way he did it? What would happen if we saw every opportunity to serve others as an opportunity to live out a cross-shaped life? 
to participate in Christ's suffering and to become like him in his death. Put very simply, we, like Paul, would know Christ more deeply. We would know Christ more deeply. And we would come to know and experience that resurrection power we so badly need and God so graciously wants to give us. There's one other thing in this section that I, that I want to deal with. I don't want to take too much time on it, but I think to ignore it would actually just raise more questions. So very briefly, uh, verses 10 and 11 again. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, verse 11, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Somehow attaining to the resurrection to the dead. What does, that, what does that even mean, right? It sounds like Paul is doubting whether or not he's going to make it, whether or not he's going to experience the resurrection from the dead, doesn't it? But that's not what's going on. Paul is not uncertain of his future with Jesus Christ, and he's not uncertain of our future with Jesus Christ. He is just uncertain about exactly how this is going to happen. Will he die and be resurrected? Or will he live long enough that Christ returns and transforms his body instead? Which one will it be? He's only uncertain about how it's going to happen. He's not uncertain that it's going to happen. And just in case we misunderstand and think Paul has already arrived at this resurrection from the dead, he continues in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I'm not there yet, Paul says. None of us are. The word translated as arrived at my goal is a word Paul rarely uses. It can mean to become perfect, to become perfect. Not that I've already obtained all this or been made or become perfect. And that same word is translated just a few verses later in verse 15 as mature. But let's run with the translation of perfect for a minute. The, the same word is used over in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So let's connect these two, these two occurrences. In Matthew 5, Jesus says in verse 43, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection, in context, perfection is about love. We are to love not only our neighbors, but also our enemies. And when we do this, we are like God. Because God loves people who are good and evil. God loves people who are righteous and unrighteous. So Jesus doesn't mean we have to live perfectly sinless lives. He means we must strive to be perfect, complete, mature, in love of others and in love of our enemies. Love others as God loves others, all of them. The ancient mothers and fathers of the church agree, by the way, the surest way to grow in our love for God is to learn to love our neighbors and our enemies. The surest way to grow in our love for God is to learn to love our neighbors and our enemies. Likewise, the late philosopher Dallas Willard said that the best way to know if we are spiritually mature 
is whether or not we were able to spontaneously love our enemies. Spontaneously. I'm not there. I have to work at it. But maturity means we are able to spontaneously love our enemies. That is how we learn also to love God. The word translated as press on in Philippians 3 means to run swiftly to catch a person or a thing. Metaphorically, it means to pursue, to seek after eagerly, to earnestly endeavor to acquire something. But we do not do this out of fear that we're going to lose something. We strain for what is ahead because of the goal and because of the prize that awaits us somewhere. Something incredible is waiting to be known. If we have come to know Christ by faith, that is, if we have acknowledged, as did the Apostle Paul, that we can't do this in our own strength, if we have turned to God in prayer, if we have confessed that we can't do it, if we have confessed that we have sinned against God and our, and, and our neighbors, God in Christ will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can rest assured that we will have eternal life with God. But there's even more, which is sort of the theme of this whole series of Deeper Water. There's even more. There's a destination. There's a goal. There's a finish line in the race. The goal is that time when Christ will return. And all who have died in God, in Christ, will be raised to resurrected life as God restores or reconciles all things to himself. This is what we run toward with all our might. This is what we pursue. This is what we strain toward. There's a goal, and there is a prize. The prize is Christ Jesus. The prize is Christ Jesus, knowing Christ more fully as Christ knows us. But Paul invites us to begin to move in that direction even now. One day we will know Christ as fully as possible. We can be moving in that direction even now, Paul says. He invites us to join with him as he perseveres. Verse 15, all of the sin who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. If we are mature, we will see that what Paul is saying here is true. How do we mature? We pursue Christ. We pursue our own transformation. We keep our eyes on the prize and we press on. We grow, we are transformed. Even as we suffer loss and difficulty and pain and persecution, we get a glimpse of heaven, a foretaste of all that God's going to have for us in the end, one day when Christ returns and transforms us to the fullest possible degree. But even now, even now, we can journey in that direction. We can experience more of what God has for us. We can experience more of Christ. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Paul doesn't mean that we can lose our salvation. But we can lose our footing. We can regress emotionally and spiritually. We can lose sight of where we are headed and we can lose momentum. We can forget who we are. It's not good or healthy to forget who we are or what we've come to know and experience of God. The only way for us to keep from losing our way and regressing emotionally and spiritually, the only way is to press on. You can't just stand still and mark time. If you do that, you're falling behind. The only way to keep from losing what we've already attained is to press on. Finally, for this week at least, Paul writes in verse 17, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul assumes community here. He assumes community. We do not journey this road alone. We surround ourselves with companions. We enter fully into community with other sisters and brothers who are committed to the journey, and we look to them for examples of maturity in the faith.
and we encourage one another along the way. Paul's call here is that we keep our eyes on the prize, that we run this race of faith with perseverance. We press on. But how, practically speaking, do we do this? Well, I think Paul has already given us some uh, strategies here. So let's recap them. We'll talk about some more next week when we get into Philippians chapter 4. First, love our neighbors. If we're going to move forward, we must set our sights on the perfection that is love. We must pray and ask God to teach us to love well, to love as he loves, to borrow from Jesus. We strive to advance in these things by praying for our enemies, even those who do us harm. In Luke 6, uh, Jesus says, not only must we pray for our enemies, but we must do good to them. We must be merciful to them. It's quite a commitment. We must learn to love our neighbors and our enemies. Another practical step. Second, we must seek to live up to what we have already attained, Paul says. In other words, we keep on engaging in the things in our lives, in our relationships that make for our own spiritual growth. We engage in soul training practices. We gather for worship together. We read, we reflect on, we study, we pray through our Bibles. We fast, we serve, we give. All of these things and so many more transform us. We live up to what we have attained and we keep moving forward in the spiritual practices and the good works uh, that work for us, that, that train us, that help us. And third and finally, if we are to follow Paul's example, if we are to follow uh, and look to those who live as Paul and his companions did, we must be in community with one another. We must be in community with one another. In community, we find companions for the journey. We find resources and examples of faithfulness. In community, we bear one another's burdens. We pray for one another. We, we share our lives with one another. This is one of the concerns I have about online worship and gatherings. They are necessary now. But my prayer is that would not, uh, these things would not become an excuse for too many of us to simply neglect meeting in person once we get on the other side of this pandemic. Our streaming services will meet a need even after the pandemic, and there are always ways to foster community and to worship online. We're doing it right now. But I hope we do not give up meeting together for those of us who are able, because community is essential for our spiritual growth, for our own transformation. Please don't misunderstand me. If this is the way that you, the only way you can do this right now, or even in the future, then we're glad to offer it. But don't let it become excuse for meeting together. Friends, we live in a liminal space. A space between when we came to faith and when Christ one day will return. And we know that somewhere, something incredible is waiting to be known by us. Maybe you are in that liminal space right now in your own walk with Christ. Or maybe you've not yet come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Either way, I invite you to join with me in prayer. And if you have not yet come to know Christ as Savior and Lord, I invite you to pray along with me and then to let us know. I invite you to send an email to prayer at ecclife.net and the pastors will get it. Just tell us that you prayed along with me, that you came to know Christ and you'd like uh, more resources and help in growing in your relationship with him. And we will reach out to you. So I invite you to pray with me as I close and I'm going to pray in uh, a sentence or a phrase. I'm going to pause and allow any of you online who would like to Pray that along with me to do so. God, I want what the Apostle Paul had. 
I want what Blaise Pascal discovered. Help me, save me, rescue me. I cannot do this on my own. Bring, I bring all my failures and sins to you. And I ask you to forgive me. Cleanse me and set my feet on the path to knowing you more and more. Begin the work of transforming me into your image. God, I commend all of those who have prayed this prayer along with me to you and to your tender care. I pray you give them the boldness and the courage to reach out, to let us know, and to continue the journey. And I pray for all of us, Lord, who are on that journey already, that we would indeed seek to follow the Apostle Paul's advice, that we would persevere, that we would press on, that we would do so, Lord, as those who are filled with the with the resurrection power, as those who are brave enough and humble enough to participate in Christ's sufferings and to be like him in his death in our interaction with the world. God, come, I pray, and use us. Help us here at ECC as a body of believers and as individuals to know that somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.